I'm passing out a map. There's not enough for everyone, especially those that can't read a map, but there's enough for the adults. They may need to be shared a little. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah. You go through the major prophets, and then you begin the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and then you have Obadiah. The shortest book of the Old Testament. But one that can give us some profit and comfort tonight, the Lord willing. I hope you enjoyed reading and singing Psalm 137. I am thankful. So that we can sing them to so many different tunes. And they, they saved so many of the words, didn't they? It is hard to take a psalm that was written in Hebrew and convert it to meter in English and still use most of the words. And they did it. And we can sing them. And I, I wanted to be able to sing psalms, and I'm thankful for that little black book that uh, is in our congregation. The shortest book of the Old Testament, but every word of God is pure. And we want to live by everyone, and I hope that I can stir your hearts to trust and love and be thankful for the great God of heaven as he's described in his dealings toward Israel in this little book and toward Israel's enemies. There is no hope for those that want to make war against the God of heaven. You young people that want to play with righteousness, you want to play against your parents, ha, 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 God is going to crush you. He will crush you. He will crush you now and he will crush you later. There is no relief. There is no peace. There is no hope for those that want to oppose the God of heaven. He is a great God. And the last verse of Psalm 137, while it wouldn't be a verse for memorizing in Sunday school, neither do they sing the Scottish Psalter about that verse. Can you imagine children going home with that little three-by-five card to show mama of a verse that they've learned in school, Sunday school? Psalm 137 is as true as any part of the Bible. And God is going to treat all of the enemies of his people that way. There's a number of things that we can learn by studying this book. I have much more than I can give you in the short amount of time that I want to spend on it tonight. But there will be an outline. It's remarkable, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 49 and read verses 7 through 22, that you have most of the book of Obadiah written in Jeremiah. Now, you've got to ask the question, which we cannot answer. Did Jeremiah write it first, and then Obadiah copied it? Or did Obadiah write it first, and Jeremiah copied it? Or is God in heaven able to cause two men to write the same thing? I believe he can have two men write the same thing. Now, you young men, if you want to help me, I'll take one of those maps, too. That means someone's got to give up their candy. Oh, thank you very much. We'll get to it in just a moment. I hope that everyone has one nearby that you can see it. When we approach a book like Obadiah, here's how we study it. We ask six questions and we answer six questions. And by the time we ask and answer six questions, we'll be able to read it rather easily. The six questions are, who is Obadiah? Don't ask me much. The first sentence is all you get about Obadiah. What does it say about him? The vision of Obadiah. That's all we know about him right there. If God wanted us to know more, he would have told us more. Some prophets, he tells us a lot. You know about the life of Daniel, but you don't know about the life of Obadiah. People have speculated, you know how many Obadiahs there are in the Old Testament? There's about 12 of them. And you don't know that he's any one of them. He's a prophet of God. He had a vision, and he announced God's judgment against Edom. We know what his name means just by looking at the last three letters, which is a shortened version of Jehovah. He is the servant of the Lord, and he served the Lord by bringing a message from God against Edom. If God wanted us to know more about this man, he would have told us, and for me to t- try to tell you any more about him is going to be sheer speculation. And I don't like doing that, and I won't do it. I never have done it. May the Lord save me from ever doing it. This book has always been part of the Jewish canon of Scripture, and the, and the Hebrews preserved it for us, and we're thankful for it. The little book of Obadiah. Well, we've asked, who is Obadiah? Sometimes the writer helps. Doesn't help here. God wrote this book, and he gave a vision to Obadiah, and Obadiah gave us this book. 
Well, whom is Edom? Because if we keep reading the first verse, it says the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. So we know what it's about and to whom the words are going to be addressed because it concerns Edom. So we can ask the question, whom is Edom? Because you ask, who wrote it and to whom is it written? And it's written to Edom, even though the Jews had it as part of their scriptures. It's about Edom. Rebekah had twins in her womb, and the Lord God spoke to her and said, There are two nations in your womb. And the younger brother, the older brother is going to serve the younger brother. And the other na- and his nation is going to serve his younger brother's nation. God made that ruling about the two brothers and their nations that came from them before they were ever born, before they had done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. And it's Romans chapter 9 and verse 13. Now that's too horrible for most people to hear today. But if it wasn't for the election of God, we'd all be in hell. Thankfully, for the election of God, some will be saved. That's more than we deserved. But God made a choice between Jacob and Esau, and he said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated before they were born. And the Apostle Paul raises that illustration in Romans chapter 9 when he is explaining the identity of the true people of God, the true children of God versus the reprobates, the elect Israel versus the non-elect Israelites, is when he uses that illustration. Well, you said Jacob and Esau. It says Edom here in Obadiah 1.1. Okay. Who is Edom as a man? He's Esau. He's Esau's other name. Esau began to be called Edom after he sold his birthright to get some what from his brother Jacob? Red pottage. And so he was called Edom from that day forward. And every descendant of Edom, of Esau, is called an Edomite or an Idumean. I'm using Bible words. I'm helping you right now read your Old Testaments. If you read Esau, or Edom, or Idumea, you are reading about the same person and his descendants, or Edomites, or Mount Seir, where they lived, or Basra, one of their capital cities, or Teman, or Dedan, or Selah. If you encounter any of those words, oh, these are Esau's descendants. And so while there's a great number of words used, it's all about one group of people in the Bible. Enemies of Israel, enemies of Jacob, cursed by God. And he had a perpetual indignation against them. And the great difference between Jacob and Esau is kept up in the differences between their nations, and it's to comfort us. It's to comfort us. Malachi chapter 1, the first five verses are beautiful, beautiful verses. Israel said, where have you loved us? And God said, I love Jacob, and I hated Esau, and I laid his heritage waste. Wait till... Wait till I explain that map to you and where Esau had to live compared to where Jacob and his descendants got to live. And you know what God told Israel in Malachi chapter 1? He said, go to the border and take a look. Go to the border and take a look and see if I haven't loved Jacob and hated Esau. He said in Malachi chapter 1, Esau thinks they're very impoverished now and they're going to rebuild their nation. They may rebuild, he says, but I will tear down again. And who helped Israel rebuild? the God of heaven, with foreign tax dollars raised by the Persian government to help them rebuild. Now that's the God of heaven and how he takes care of his people. That's Edom. Edom is Esau. Esau is Edom. Esau is the father of the Edomites, and he had quite a nation given to him. You can read about it in Genesis 36. When you're reading through the book of Genesis, there is one chapter that you dislike out of the whole book of Genesis. It's chapter 36 because you have to read about the 11 dukes of Esau, his eleven sons, by which the land of the Horites was inhabited by his family. He took over a piece of ground inhabited by the Horites who had a king named Seir. And a mountain ended up being named Seir, and the mountain range that you see on your map there around Edom on the east of it is called Seir. But it's because Esau had that land. And when you read Genesis 36, it goes through each of his eleven sons and tells them the duke of what part of Edom they were. Just explaining that for you, that as you read the Old Testament, you'll understand. Mount Seir of the Horites is what Edom took over. 
Idumea means the same thing. And I, I mentioned some of the cities. Let me give you a brief history of the Edomites given to us in the Bible. But to save the time, I'd be here for four hours if you want the full thing of looking up the verses. I'm just going to give you a short thumbnail sketch of the history of Esau and his descendants that the Bible gives us. Looking at your map, find Jerusalem. It's right in the very center of the map. It's got a big black dot, and it's called Jerusalem. I hope you see it there. To the right of it is the Dead Sea. At the bottom of the Dead Sea is where Edom began. And it ran down that great gully that is still there that comes down to the Gulf of Aquaba, which is part of the Red Sea, which gave whoever controlled that port access to the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. Very important port. Solomon used it. Solomon sent his navy out of Ezion Geber, which is right there next to Elath, though it's not on your map, in order to allow, in order to use this copyrighted map. And I do honor copyrights because to disregard them is to steal. To use them, I can't mark the map. That was the only requirement they had. All right, I had this all doctored up for you. But there's a, there's a gully that runs down 100 miles long from the end of the Red Sea down to what is called Elath, which is the Bible name for a port that was there on the Red Sea. And that gully is still there. It's 100 miles long. The mountains to the east of it, which is the right of it, are the mountains that Edom lived in. They did not live in that gully. That The name there, Edom, in the middle of the gully is not true. It's only true after the Jews were taken into Babylon and Edom expanded their territory. They lived in the mountains because there's one thing known about the Edomites. They lived in the mountains and thought they were impregnable. You need to know that to be able to understand the book of Obadiah. That is a very mountainous range, and they lived in it, and they lived in caves, and they carved out houses in the sandstone up in those mountains. Now that border of Edom that runs behind those mountains, that is called the King's Highway. And it was very important for travel in the Bible because that trade took place from Egypt all the way up to Damascus of Syria by a highway that ran behind that mountain range all the way up through there. And the Edomites controlled it on the southern end, and that's how they made a lot of their money. They, did, they didn't have a whole lot of pasture land because they lived in the mountains. That's how they made their money. But let me tell you about what, that's the territory they took when Esau left his father and had 11 sons and made them the dukes of this country that is 20 miles wide and 100 miles long. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, they were brothers and they were twin brothers. And the Lord expected Esau to treat his brother better. But, you know, you know the story of Jacob when he came back into Canaan and he had to go meet his brother who had promised to kill him. The Lord took care of him, didn't he? Old Esau fell on his neck and kissed him. It's like Brother Red going to see his brother recently. You remember that story? I'm deleting that out because that's not the nations. That's just the two brothers. But a couple of hundred years transpired and Israel grew to three million people down in Egypt. And when they came up out of Egypt... They needed to get through that territory to get up around the Jordan River and cross into Canaan. And they asked for permission of their brother. This is found in Numbers 20, and I'm not going to turn you there. They asked for their brothers. His brother's long dead, but it's all the Edomites. Moses said, we promise that we will stay on the highway. We will not go into your vineyards. We will not take anything. We will not do anything. We will go straight through your country and touch nothing. Will you please let us go through? No, you can't come through our land. And they brought their armies down to face, to face the defenseless Israelites. And God said, we'll not fight them right now. And so they went another route. This is the history of Edom and how the Edomites have treated the Israelites in the Bible. Old Balaam, when he got up on a mountaintop, he had a few things to say about Edom. He knew what was coming in the future for them and that God would raise up some mighty men out of the nation of Israel that would defeat Edom. David first and then the Lord Jesus Christ, which we'll get to both of those. You know, the Lord is merciful to the Edomites, though, because they were sort of family. He would let them join the congregation of Israel after only three, three generations. 
You know, if you were an Ammonite or a Moabite, it took ten generations. That's how much God hated the Ammonites and the Moabites. Where did the Ammonites and the Moabites come from? Amen. I'm glad to have answers like that. Lay it on me. Ten generations. But for the Edomites, three. For over 400 years, if you read the book of Judges, you don't read a thing about Edom. For 400 years, Judges reigned over the nation of Israel. Then King Saul came along, and at the height of his power, the Lord did bless King Saul. For a while he obeyed, and he defeated the Edomites, and drove them back into their land, and kept them in the boundaries of what I just described to you, just 20 miles wide and 100 miles long of that mountain range. David came along later and defeated them thoroughly. His nephews had quite the, quite the accomplishments down there, and you can read about them in the Bible, and they're on the outline of defeating thousands of the Edomites, and they put garrisons in their major cities and left deputies there to govern the land. Now, that's domination. When you take over a land and put garrisons of your troops in their cities, and you have deputies that are ruling over the land instead of the king of Edom, it was deputies from Israel. And it remained that way for some time. Now, God raised up Hadad, the Edomite, to be an adversary for Solomon, the Bible tells us. I'm just going through a thumbnail sketch. Can't go to the details right now. If you want to do it late, I've had, I've had great pleasure, because I love the Word of God, and I love God's dealings with His people. I, listen, if, you, if I had one week off right now, another full week, a full week, nothing else to do, I'd just ransack this book a little bit more. I, the, the Bible never ends. I mean, once you start reading about the Edomites, you read them, you, you go through the whole Bible. I'm going to show you the Edomites in the New Testament. They're everywhere. Herod the Great was an Edomite. Now, the Herod that tried to kill the Lord Jesus Christ by killing the babies. But let me go back about Hadad. God raised up Hadad the Edomite to be an adversary to Solomon for his sins. During Jehoshaphat's reign, the Edomites came and tried to defeat Jehoshaphat. But if you'll remember, that's Jehoshaphat's great battle where he stood and God said, Stand still and see the salvation of God. There were two other nations that came along with the Edomites, and God got those other two nations. And all of a sudden, they looked over at the Edomite and said, I hate Edomites, and went over there and killed them all. And then after they had killed all the Edomites, they turned and looked at each other, I hate you too. And they killed each other, and Jehoshaphat's just standing there. The whole earth is shaking as they all kill each other. And it took them three days to cart off all the spoil. That's my God. And I hope that it's your God. Jehoshaphat was worried about the battle. And, he, and the Lord just said, play and sing. I'll do the rest. I like that. And you know what? If you'll pray and sing and do some playing and singing too, the Lord will take care of your problems. Yeah. That wasn't even part of tonight. But that's part of the thumbnail sketch about the Edomites. Jehoram defeated the Edomites. Amaziah defeated the Edomites, even though these men were not perfect kings. God bless them because they were a whole lot more perfect than the Edomites were who were gross idolaters and always were. Then, as we read in Psalm 137, when Nebuchadnezzar brought his armies into Israel to destroy Jerusalem, the Edomites came out of those mountains where they had been kept by the Jews for so long and by so many different kings, and they said, all right, finally, we'll just come along and be confederates with Babylon, and we'll help the Babylonians, and they did. And they cut off all the escape routes of the south, as the, as the inhabitants of Jerusalem fled south for safety in Egypt, that's where, Ju- that's where Jeremiah went, you know, for safety in Egypt, the Edomites cut off their escape route, robbed them, turned them back over to the Babylonians, and they said, raise the city of Jerusalem, and they went into the city of Jerusalem, although Nebuchadnezzar was the one that did all the work. While Judah was gone, Nebuchadnezzar came after them a few, le- few years later because God told them that he was going to send Nebuchadnezzar after them. I want you to know something about Nebuchadnezzar. Don't despise that man, though he spent seven years as an animal. Because God said he's my servant. God set up Nebuchadnezzar to be the greatest king the world has ever seen. And he said, he is my servant. And he will do all my will. And he was a great king. He took 13 years defeating the city of Tyre, which is on your map way up there in Phoenicia, But while he was there destroying Tyre, after taking out Jerusalem, that's when he whipped on all the nations around Israel that he had promised he would do. 
Because God had said he was going to use them against those nations. Not only that, the Edomites had been traitors with the Arabians. And with Israel out of the way, the Arabians pushed Edom out of those mountains, this is for the judgment of God against them, into southern Judah. They were pushed out of their mountain strongholds, and we're going to read that in the book of Obadiah. And they were pushed out there, and when, when the Jews came back to Jerusalem and resettled Judah, which we're going to read about in Obadiah, the Jews, under some mighty men that we read about in Scripture, and some mighty men that came in the 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew, defeated those Edomites utterly, until they were assimilated and absorbed into Israel. And they ceased to exist as a nation, and they cannot be found today. They could not be found 1,500 years ago. Just as God will say in the book of Obadiah, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, and Amos, that the Edomites are through with them and there will not be a man left of them. What is the prophecy of the book of Obadiah? We've asked who. Obadiah wrote it. We've asked whom. Who are these Edomites, the descendants of Esau? And we've just had a thumbnail sketch of their animosity toward Israel and what they did when the Babylonians came and took Israel captive from Jerusalem. Now, what is the prophecy? It is a, it's one lesson. The judgment of God against the enemies of his people. From verse 1 to the last verse. And toward the last verse, we can also see in there a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel era vaguely. I'll show you how we see it. Vaguely there, because God is going to raise up the Lord Jesus Christ to defeat all of his enemies as well as the men that he raised up to defeat the, the literal nations that were the enemies of Israel. It's a warning of God's long memory. He did not forget. It's a warning of God's great indignation against the enemies of his people. And it's a promise of the eventual success, victory, and prosperity of the kingdom of the Lord. And it ends with those wonderful words, The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Amen. And I hope that you love that. You, you follow a king that, that has never lost and will never lose. You follow a king that's never been close. And he'll destroy all of his enemies and vanquish them all. He made an open show of the greatest enemy he's ever had. And that's the devil himself. And he did that in the cross in his weakest moment. Praise his great and glorious name. When was the prophecy? It is amazing. And I get so tired of reading men trying to figure out when was this prophecy written and what period of time does it have to deal with? Well, if you read Psalm 137, you know that the event that stuck out in God's mind most for what Edom did that offended him was Babylon taking Jerusalem and the Edomites standing there and helping them along with the taking of Jerusalem. Then if you read Jeremiah, you read the same thing. And where was Jeremiah... When did Jeremiah prophesy? After it was taken, was Jeremiah right there when the city was taken? So we know when he wrote. See, we're not told about Obadiah, but we're told exactly about Jeremiah. How about Ezekiel? Right after the captivity. And see, these men wrote the very same things that Obadiah wrote. There's not a doubt in my mind what Obadiah is about. It's about when Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, took the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the Jews and took them captive into Babylon. And the Edomites came out of the woodwork, out of the mountains, and took advantage of that situation in Israel. While God was chastening his people, they took advantage of it, and God did not forget that. Even while God is chastening you, and the chastening might be severe, like 70 years long, in a foreign land, he'll still remember you. And he'll still mark every one that is getting haughty about what's happening to you, and he will bring them down. Praise his great name. Why was the prophecy? I've already said that this evening because God made a difference between Jacob and Esau before they were even born. And he made a difference between their nations. God puts up one nation, he puts down another. Let's read the prophecy. Verses 1 and 2, the vision of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen, 
Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. This is the word of the Lord. These are the words of the Lord God against Edom. Now a rumor from the Lord is better than the facts of any man. I enjoy that word. It's the same word that Jeremiah uses in Jeremiah 49. We have heard a rumor from the Lord. Well, a rumor from the Lord is because he was going to turn the hearts of all the bordering nations and the heart of the king of Babylon to come against Edom and to punish them. And it's as if he sent an ambassador. But he did send ambassadors. Do you remember the creatures that help make up kings' minds so that they do things that they would otherwise not do? Angels. Remember in the book of Daniel, we read about the prince of Grecia and the prince of Persia, and it wasn't talking about men, it was talking about angels, powerful angels, that were in those wicked nations that motivated them to their wickedness. I want to remind you something about the God of heaven. Revelation 17, 17 tells me that he has put in the minds, this is history now, he put in the minds of the ten kings of Europe to give their kingdoms to the beast. Because God has the hearts of kings in his hand like the rivers of waters. And he puts in their will to do his will. It's amazing what God does with men. And he has a right to do it with them. And he, he did it in Revelation, and he did it here. This ambassador is not a literal ambassador. It's God sending out his messengers to turn the hearts of these kings, especially the king of Babylon, to come against Edom. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. And look at the Lord mocking Edom. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Look at their land. It reminds me of Japan. You know, when I look at Japan, look what God gave them. A little rock poking itself up out of the Pacific Ocean. Look what God gave Esau. A little strip of mountains between the Dead Sea and the Red Sea. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. This is the Lord God speaking about Edom. He had made up his mind before those children were born how he would deal with them, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, and he kept up that purpose in their lives. He let Esau have a little mountain range for a little while, and then they provoked Israel enough to where he destroyed them utterly. But the vision so far is Obadiah speaking on behalf of the Lord he has sent his ambassadors out. He is calling together nations that are going to whip Edom for what they did to Israel. Oh, there's so many things that can be said about that and the way that God uses nations. I hope that no one fears any political machinations, conspiracies, or projects of any nation or conglomeration of nations in the world because they can't do a thing and never have done a thing that God hasn't purposed for them to do. And who are you to stop it? And why would you waste any time even learning about it? We have more important things to be doing in our homes and with our own souls. The Lord will take care of all that. No one's ever planned a thing outside of His total control. He directs the hearts of kings. The reason we're in Iraq right now is because there's a conspiracy in heaven, not because there's a conspiracy on earth. And the conspiracy in heaven is the will of God being done. The will of God's never not been done in our nation. We might look and say, why? Well, my answer is, because God wanted us to be in Iraq right now. He's always done that, and he's going to keep doing it. And he may do it until he destroys this nation. We don't know what his plan is for the future for us. So we need to keep praying for our nation. We don't deserve his blessing. He raises up kings, and he puts them down, and looks at, look at how he talks about them. I have made thee small. Now, why was Edom such an impoverished little country there in those mountains? Because God made them small. Did he make Jacob bigger? <laughs> Look at the map. It looks kind of bigger to me. It looks like it runs all the way up there outside of Phoenicia near Damascus. And it comes all the way down to Kadesh Barnea. And I'm telling you that Solomon sent his navy out of Ezion Geber on that right next to Elath. They controlled all of Edom. I want, I want you to know that David had outposts on the Euphrates River. Now, you measure from the Euphrates River down to 
this port right here on the Red Sea, and that is a huge territory. And God gave that to David and to Solomon, just as he had prophesied to them. Let's read verse, I'm going to read verses 3 through 9, the second section of the, the book. The certain destruction of Edom. Obadiah, verse 3. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though, thy, though thou set thy nest among the stars, since will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed, to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Amen and amen. The certain destruction of Edom. The first two verses, verses 3 and 4, God is mocking them about their strongholds in that mountain range called Mount Seir. That's that, mount, that range of mountains where they lived. God is mocking them for thinking that they were invincible. Now, they were invincible to ordinary military attack by being way up in the mountains. They could control the passes, and an army would have to pass through one soldier at a time Read about what happened to the greatest army ever put in a field in Europe and how the Athenians defeated them when the Persians first came against the Greeks because they found a narrow place. Edom could control the mountains, but look at God. I don't care how high you go. I don't care if you're as high as the eagles fly. I don't care where you put your nest. Even if you go up to the stars of heaven, I will pull you down. And isn't there a lesson in that for all of us? You cannot hide from God. You cannot defend yourself from God. No matter where you go, David himself said, If I go to hell, behold, thou art there. If I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, thou art there. But Edom thought they were, impre- they could, they were safe in their mountain homes. And God said, I'll bring you down. Then he mocks them. He says in verse 5, If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, and he has in parentheses, how art thou cut off? And it's not a question. It's a statement. You are seriously cut off. If robbers came, they would only take what they could conveniently carry. I mean, robbers don't come into your house when you come home. It's stripped bare. Okay? They don't strip the place bare. But God is saying, while robbers won't, I will. That's what I'll do to you by your enemies. You know, if grape gatherers came, they do miss a few grapes here and there. Sometimes intentionally, and sometimes because they're just not doing a great job. But I won't leave any. That's what he's saying, mocking them, when he says in verse 6, How are the things of Esau searched out? Everything they had hidden in those mountain passes of of Mount Seir, God would find it out. And I'll tell you, when you set underpaid soldiers free... What did John, hold on. When you set underpaid, soldiers are always underpaid. That's why they usually take advantage of the populace when they're in a foreign country. Usually. When you let them loose in a nation that you're defeating and say, go ahead and take anything you can find, they don't leave much. Do you remember when John the Baptist was addressed by soldiers? The soldiers said, what shall we do? What did John the Baptist say? Lay down your arms and become a Quaker? Be content with your wages and do violence to no man. Did that mean to take up a secretarial position back at base camp? Or did that mean not to do violence to the citizens of the country unnecessarily? That was the violence spoken about there. 
Because violence in war, for warfare's sake, is not violence to God. But be content with your wages. That was a little sidelight. I didn't even mean to go there. But I want you to understand how a robber doesn't usually take everything. But if you're an underpaid soldier and there's a bunch of you, you can haul a lot of stuff away. Verse 7, all the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. They are hitting their mountains. How are you going to get them out? Because they think that they have friends. Were they friends with the Babylonians? Yes. They stood by the city of Jerusalem while the Babylonians took it down. They turned over escaping Israelites to the Babylonians as we're about to read. The Babylonians were some of their confederates. And so were the Arabians that helped them manage and profit from the king's highway. But guess what? They deceived the Edomites and brought them out of their holes and brought them even to their border where they would have to face an army on level ground and they were no match. Jeremiah puts it this way, the least of Nebuchadnezzar's flock will take you down. <laughs> I love it. It's in Jeremiah 49. The least, the smallest, pitifulest part of Nebuchadnezzar's army will take care of you Edomites. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. Nebuchadnezzar was their friend for a while, but once he had done his work upon Jerusalem, then God unleashed Nebuchadnezzar his servant upon the nations around Jerusalem. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. He doesn't know what's going on. He thought they were his friends, and they weren't. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the Mount of Esau? God took away the cunning that that nation had and destroyed them and began their final dissolution with the armies of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 9, And thy mighty men, O Teman. Now see, here's one of those words. This isn't the only time it's in the Bible. Teman's one of their cities. Do you ever say something, have you ever read something like Moscow reported today? Well, Moscow's a city. It doesn't really do a whole lot of reporting. But you say, you use the name of a principal city to represent the nation. Washington said, well, Washington doesn't talk. It's an English word. Describe, are you with me? And so the Bible describes Edomites sometimes as Esau, as Mount Esau, as Edom, as Idumea, as Teman, as Dedan, as Selah. And when you read, when you find those words, don't get alarmed by them. They're just all synonyms for the Edomites. And so he's addressing the nation by one of their principal cities. Shall I not in that, verse 9, and thy mighty men, O Teman, one of their great cities, shall be dismayed to the, to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. God was going to wipe out the Edomites, and he refers to them as Teman here in the ninth verse. That's the promise of certain destruction of Edom. Now, we haven't been told why yet. So the next section of Obadiah is the why God had such anger against the Edomites. And it begins in verse 10. And I'm going to read through verse 16. For, I like it when the Bible's this simple. Don't you? For, for thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest, on the other side. In the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity. Nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. 
Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. They would utterly consume, drink down, all the Edomites. These, I hope that you can understand all these verses, every clause of them. It's simple enough. It's the judgment against Edom. Let's look very quickly at them. It's for thy violence against thy brother Jacob. And when it says thy brother Jacob, it doesn't just mean the man Jacob, but it means all of his descendants. And that's a metonym. Just like I used Moscow as a metonym for Russia, Washington as a metonym for the United States, Teman as a metonym for the Edomites. That's where you use a city or a person. Jacob being the father of all the Israelites, they just used his name here. For the violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and you'll be cut off forever, because you stood on the other side. Isn't that... Where should brothers be? If one brother, if one brother is facing an enemy and in a fight, where should his brothers be? On his side. Not on the other side. I like the word of God. You stood on the other side. You should have been with your brother. That's what verse 11 is saying. In the day that the strangers, who were the strangers, the Babylonians, carried away captive his forces, took away all of the prime men of Israel and Judah. Daniel was in that group. Kings were in that group. Took them away to Babylon. And foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem. You were just like one of them. You stood with them on the other side. But you know, once you choose the wrong side, you don't stay there very long. Pretty soon, you're right down in the dirt with them. And the Edomites stood on the side of the Babylonians, but they couldn't withstand the temptation, could they? They put their hands to their brother's stuff in the day of his calamity. Did God, was enough said here, and have I read it, that God does remember when you have a calamity? Who brought the calamity? God did. Why did he bring the calamity? To be mean? Or because they... For their sins. Do you mean there's a God in heaven that when he's bringing a calamity in your life, because of your sins, he's still looking out for you? I'll tell... I get so excited about that. You mean when I've sinned and he has to whip me and he whips me badly, he still loves me. And if anybody even gets haughty about the whipping that I'm taking and they start laughing at me because I'm getting a whipping from God for being a sinner, that he remembers that and he's going to pound them for that? Amen, brother. You love the God of heaven. Even when he's whipping you, he loves you. Look at him speaking to Edom by his prophet Obadiah. Thou shouldest not have looked. This is verse 12. Thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. You shouldn't have jumped in your SUVs and come out of the mountains and driven up to Jerusalem to look on what I was doing against that city. You shouldn't have rejoiced in what I was doing to the children of Judah. You shouldn't have spoken proudly in the day of their distress. That is so comforting to know that even when God is chastening us, he does not want... He does not allow our enemies to get away with saying proud things against us. And he goes on to say in verse 13, You shouldn't have gone into the cities of my people and touched their stuff. Verse 14, You shouldn't have touched the ones that escaped out of Jerusalem. Can you imagine a Jew packing as much as he could carry and trying to flee south to get to Egypt for safety, away from Jerusalem, and Edomites cut him off. God saw it. You say, but I thought he was wanting to pound Israel. He was going to pound them his way. But remember, whatever happens that God uses, he still holds the men accountable that sinned in what was being done for his use. Did God just... The men that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, did they do something wickedly? Had God purposed that for his ultimate glory and the salvation of his people? But they did it with wicked hands. They wickedly did something that was the will of God. Remember in Isaiah chapter 10, the king of Assyria is spoken of as you're just a saw in my hand. 
and I shake you, you shake a saw by pushing it back, and that's shaking it. God says, you are nothing but a saw in my hand, and I shake you. And as soon as I'm done shaking you over my people Israel, I'll pound you. Because even though God uses men, he still holds them accountable for their sins. And there are some people that say they can't understand that, that it's not that complicated. He's just great in being able to figure it all out, which we can't do. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. And this is the day that is spoken of very much in Jeremiah and Ezekiel about my servant Nebuchadnezzar and what he's going to do to the city of Tyre and to the other enemies of the nation of Israel. And it's going to include Edom. The day of the Lord is near. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return on thine own head. If you are unmerciful and cruel to someone else, God's going to bring it down on your own pate, as the Bible tells us. Verse 16, For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, you came into Jerusalem and drank my wine in my city. They're going to drink you, and they're going to drink you and swallow you all down until there won't even be a remembrance of you. And we come to the last section. The vision of the Lord in Israel. Verse 17. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. Amen. Look at, the, look at the mayhem and destruction and anger of the Lord against Edom in verses 1 through 16. But we have that but in verse 17. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. And there shall be holiness. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain, the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. And the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Amen. When we look at a, a section like this, we need to see two things. We need to see two things. First of all, there is a literal fulfillment of every verse right there, 17 through 21. Then there is a spiritual fulfillment that is to be seen in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ when the kingdom is the Lord's. And I'll, let me show you that. First of all, the literal fulfillment. Upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. Did God deliver Mount Zion and restore it to the Jews and bring them back? Did he establish holiness among them? When you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, did those people that came back to Jerusalem, did they love holiness and fear their God? Were they different than the, group, the generation that was hauled into Babylon? They were very different. There was holiness established in Jerusalem. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Did the Jews, the house of Jacob, come back and retake their possessions? Yes. Can you name me some of their leaders? Just giving you a couple. Zerubbabel. Nehemiah. Ezra. Joshua the high priest. There's four of their saviors that brought them back. Remember how they would build? A sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. They did recover their land. They came back from Babylon. That destruction of them wasn't final. That was just a chastening from the Lord for 70 years. And verse 18 tells us that whatever is left of Edom after Nebuchadnezzar got through with them, whatever was left, the Jews would take care of, because the house of Jacob shall be the fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they would just burn up the house of Esau. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. In verse 18. Now, when did that take place? You know, when you read your Bibles and you come to the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi is 400 years before the book of Matthew. And there's a 400-year period of time in there that only Daniel gave us a chronological sketch of 
And we studied that on Wednesday nights a couple of years ago. During that period of time, there were some men that feared God that Daniel spoke of that did fear their God and would do exploits. And they were the Maccabees. And they governed Israel for a number of years and they defeated the Edomites. Every, everyone knows about it. It's common history. Daniel told us the sketch of the chronological development of it. This prophecy just speaks of it. They came back from Babylon, retook their possessions, built the city walls, built the temple, and destroyed the Edomites. John Hyrcanus of the Maccabees, of the time of the Maccabees, forced every Edomite in the boundaries of Israel to be circumcised and to profess the Jewish religion or be put to death. And so there were converts that weren't really converts, but the nation of Edom, that, you know, that kind of, that kind of takes a nation out of existence when you all have to either die or confess that you're not what you are. And see, that's where Herod the Great came from. Herod the Great was appointed by the Roman Senate to be the king of Judea. You know, how did that man become the king of Judea? Was he of the tribe of Judah? No, he wasn't of the tribe of Judah at all. He was an imposter appointed by the Roman Senate. He was an Idumean. An Idumean is a man from Idumea, which is Edom. But he was one of these converts because the nation had ceased to exist as itself. And you can no longer find it. But this is what is spoken of in these last few verses. And God fulfilled this literally, perfectly. It burned them up. Destroyed their nation. For the Lord hath spoken it. And he did it. And they of the south. Now who, look at your map. Who's in the south? Judah or Israel? Judah. Judah had the southernmost area of Canaan. and Of Palestine. They of the south shall possess the Mount of Esau. Notice how close Judah is to Edom. They took over the territory that had been held by Edom. It went back to the days of David and Solomon who had a port on the Red Sea down there. That's how far they had extended Judah. And God is saying, I'm going to re-extend while I'm crushing Edom. My people are going to come back. They're going to get Mount Zion back. Holiness will be established. And I'm going to expand their borders. And he gives some descriptions here of how he expanded their borders when they came back from Babylon. They of the south, meaning Judah, shall possess the Mount of Esau. And they of the plain... Other tribes shall possess the area of the Philistines, and they shall possess other tribes, the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria. You can look at your, this map doesn't show all those areas, but this is extending north now. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Gilead's the territory on the other side of the Jordan River that two and a half tribes shared. God would expand the borders of their of the land of Israel back to what it was before they were taken captive in the in the height of their power under David and Solomon when it says they of the south and those of the plain it's talking about the different tribes Judah was always in the south verse 20 and the captivity of this host of the children of Israel now he's speaking not only to the Jews but to the Israelites. Remember, there were ten tribes and two tribes. The ten tribes were taken into captivity 130 years before the two tribes went to Babylon. But God's going to bring back some of them when they saw the Jews coming back to Jerusalem. And when they came back, they got their old tribal lands back. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel, the ten tribes, shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, which is a city up there between Tyre and Sidon. That's the territory of Israel. They're going to get it back. And the captivity of Jerusalem, who are the Jews of Judah, taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, shall possess the cities of the south. And we have a city mentioned there where they must have been held captive in Babylon called Sepharad. It's nowhere else in the Bible. But just looking at the context, we know that the Jews are being talked about. We know it's about them coming back and taking their cities. That must have been one of their captivity cities in the land of Babylon. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. And this is not the Lord Jesus Christ. Only there's a literal fulfillment because it's plural. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and Joshua were some of those saviors that came up, and the Maccabees that God raised up to destroy the Edomites as well during that 400-year intertestamental period. And so Edom was put out of existence according to the word of the Lord.
However, there's more we want to see, brethren. When we, when we read in the Bible, Mount Zion, I don't want you to ever forget that when you read the words Mount Zion, and it's put in a prophetic context to forget that the kingdom of Jesus Christ and heaven itself is called Mount Zion. And so we just read about Mount Zion in verse 17. Upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. So when we read that, we want to think, is there anything in here? Is there anything here for us to see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of heaven and heaven itself and Jesus Christ's ultimate victory over all his enemies? Is there anything here for us? When we read of the Lord's kingdom, with the words that this chapter ends, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. When we read about the Lord's kingdom, you know, the kingdom that ought to come to mind first is the New Testament kingdom that God set up in the days of the Roman Empire. According to the prophecies of Daniel and John the Baptist was the one that announced it. You know, if we just look around a little bit in our Bibles, if we just look around and we ask, Lord, do you have anything else for me to see about Edom? Is there anything else that I can see? Well, what if you just start reading out from Obadiah? What if you were to go back and read the last chapter of Amos? Look at what it says. Come back to the last. It's the chapter before Obadiah. Amos chapter 9 and verse 11. I'm going to read to you. Amos 9.11 In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof and I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old. Don't read ahead yet. I know you are. This sounds like God wants to restore Israel to the luster and power of it was under David. That's what it says. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Amos 9, 11, and 12. What is its fulfillment? James tells us at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. It was the conversion of the household of Cornelius and those Gentiles that were converted after him from among the Gentiles. God was building up the house of David again with converted Gentiles. Paul spoke, Peter spoke, and then James said, Men and brethren, let me tell you what the situation here is. God has known this from the beginning of what he was going to do. He is rebuilding the nation of Israel. He is rebuilding the house of David, the tabernacle of David, and he's raising it up again, and David's son Jesus Christ is king, and he's making it of Gentiles. And Acts 15, the whole issue being, how do we deal with the conversion of all these Gentiles? James explained it as the fulfillment of Amos 9, 10, 11. And look at what 11, what, I mean, 11 and 12. And look at what verse 12 said. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name. There would be converts coming out of Edom and of all the heathen nations that would make up the new rebuilt Israel, where there is no distinction or division between Jews and Gentiles. The one house of David. And you know, we come to Acts chapter 2, and there were 15 different nations there that were to worship in Jerusalem. We go to Acts chapter 8, and there's an Ethiopian eunuch being converted. And as we go through the book of Acts, we have all these Gentiles being converted, and God is raising up his kingdom. The kingdom is the Lord's. The kingdom is the Lord's, and he has rebuilt his kingdom on Mount Zion. And we are come to the Jerusalem which is above, that is the only Jerusalem that counts. The one on this earth God has rejected 2,000 years ago, and left it desolate forever. And he'll never return to it, and he has nothing to do with it. The Jerusalem that is above is the mother of us all. We are come. When Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, he wasn't even writing to us Gentiles. He was writing to Jews, and he told them, your Jerusalem is above. Not down here, even though he was writing Jews. And so there's a fulfillment that we can see in the language that typifies the Lord Jesus Christ. It's typified, typifying the Lord Jesus Christ coming in his kingdom and converting those that are called by his name from among these pagan nations. And yet he's going to destroy them all in the end. And if you go on to read, the Lord is going to bless his kingdom. But James told us it's, it's spiritual fulfillment was in the building of the New Testament church. 
in Acts chapter 15. We believe the word of God and let the word of God interpret itself. James, presiding over the council of Jerusalem, settled that explanation for Amos chapter 9. Did Edom participate in the kingdom of the Lord? Edom itself? Now it said in Amos 9 that Edom itself would participate. In Acts 15, we don't read about Edom. But in Mark 3 and verse 8, I do. Let me read you a verse from Mark chapter 3 and verse 8. Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan. And they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he preached on earth, had an audience that included some that came from Idumea. The few left of the Edomites that were called by his name came to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom is the Lord's. If we were to go look at the prophecy of Balaam, old Balaam saw, he looked far ahead, and he saw a star coming out of Jacob, and a scepter coming out of Jacob that would take all the Edomites. And see, God has raised up David, Solomon, Ezra, Zerubbabel, and others that have destroyed the Edomites literally, but he raised up the Lord Jesus Christ that converted and saved some of them and even added them in as stones in the house of my God. And we are some of those heathen that have been added into the house of Israel and made the Israel of God, the true Jews, and the tabernacle of David that was fallen down, but it's raised up again with Gentiles. Is there anything for us in the book of Obadiah in the 21st century, in the year 2005? God is sovereign over nations. We should never be alarmed by anything that happens in governments because God is sovereign over them all. God has distinguishing love for his people and perpetual hatred for his enemies. Distinguishing love. He will never lose a single one of his. Jesus wouldn't lose one, and God did not lose the Jews, even when he was chastening them. And brethren, there's a reward for the righteous. There's a reward for the righteous. Even when you're being chastened, there will be a reward. That is seen in the blessings that come at the end of the book of Obadiah for Israel coming back and retaking their possessions and being blessed to the Lord. And there is vengeance for the righteous. He will judge all the enemies of the righteous. He does not forget. He has a long memory. And when he says vengeance is mine, he means it. And you can trust him to take care of you and to punish all your enemies. Brother, when you go through the word of God, Israel came out of Egypt, and Amalek fought with them. Amalek would not let them have a highway to Canaan. And do you know what God said? He told Moses, don't you dare forget what Amalek's done. And Moses told Joshua, don't you dare forget what Amalek's done. And there was a day, 500 years later, 500 years later, God said to Samuel, Samuel, go tell Saul, I have a job for him. I remember what Amalek did to my people Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now cut them off, man, woman, and suckling child, ox, and ass, and everything they have, because I remember from 500 years ago what they did to my people. Now that is lasting love. Do you want someone that loves you with lasting love? That is lasting 500 years. Israel was in Egypt for 215 years, and they sighed by reason of their bondage, and their sigh came up into heaven, and God heard their groanings. And I'll tell you, when they left the land of Egypt, they did not leave poor. They got wages. They got back wages. They went and saw the paymaster and took back wages for 215 years and spoiled the land of Egypt. This is the Lord your God. There's a reward. There's a revenge for the righteous. God will defend his people. You know, there's some little lessons that we saw in the book of Obadiah. You better not touch one of God's anointed, whether it's one of his servants or one of his people. Just one of his saints, God will protect them. God protected them all against Edom. Pride in your abilities or defenses sure isn't going to save you, is it? 
Edom was pretty proud of their mountain strongholds, but it didn't help them. Once you take the wrong side, what's going to keep you from joining in with those that you, the side you've chosen? What's going to stop you once you pick the wrong friends? The Bible says a companion of fools shall be destroyed. You know what the safe way is? Forsake the foolish and live. Edom came and stood and watched, but then they couldn't resist touching the stuff of their brother Jacob, and God punished them for it. Brethren, God keeps his word. He told Edom that he was going to destroy them, and he did. And last of all, let me say it again. Even when God's chasing you for your sins, and it's a pretty bad time in your life, there's a God that still remembers that you're his and that he loves you. And no matter what people may be saying about you, or being proud because you're under his chastening rod, he will punish them for it and save you. He does not forget that he loves you, even when he has to pound you badly because of your sins. I don't think that's fair, but I sure love telling you about it, and I sure love reading about it. I think it's merciful. I think it's gracious, and I think it's the character of the God we worship. And may the Lord bless the little book of Obadiah to your hearts, to love the God we serve and to know that he's going to keep us safe all the way to his heavenly kingdom, for the kingdom is the Lord's.